0: Thanks for tuning in to episode 22 of achieve great things this is rj from hathaway your host this week we have a really special interview uh, doug hathaway and i were able to sit down with clarence jones who's the former personal counsel advisor, draft speechwriter, and close friend of Martin Luther King Jr. Right now he's a scholar in residence at the Martin Luther King Jr. Institute at Stanford, and we caught up with him at the Communications Network Conference in Miami last month. He talked to us a lot about his work on the I Have a Dream speech, and um, really interesting insight into, into that, but also into what he thinks foundations and others um, need to be doing right now, and he talks a lot about mo- moral clarity and moral courage. So we hope you enjoy. Um, we appreciate you listening. If you haven't yet, give us a review on iTunes. And if you have thoughts, uh, comments, feedback, guest ideas, that sort of thing, feel free to email us at podcast at Hadaway.com. I think that's about it. We'll get into the interview with Clarence Jones. We hope you all enjoy it. And we'll see you next time. Thanks for tuning in.
1: Today we're talking to Dr. Clarence Jones. Clarence B. Jones. Clarence B. Jones. I
2: just a deference to my mother. (laughs) Could (laughs) be my middle name.
1: Who served as legal counsel, advisor, friend, and speechwriter. Staff speechwriter from Martin Luther King Jr. for Martin Luther King. And I'm the lucky owner of one of your books, Behind the Dream, The Making of the Speech that Transformed a Nation. Right, right. Um, and that speech has meant a lot to me as somebody who uh, studies what we call aspirational communication. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. How do you speak to people's hopes mm-hmm, and values mm-hmm. and inspire them? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and it uh, really struck me that you helped Dr. King articulate a mm-hmm. uh, message to America, a powerful message mm-hmm, in turbulent mm-hmm. times mm-hmm. in 1963. Right, August 28th, Wednesday, August 28th, 1963. Hmm. And here we are 54 years later, right. once again, living in turbulent times. Right. Um, so I thought we could explore first, back then, okay. the I Have a Dream speech, mm-hmm. those times. Mm-hmm. Um, and the choices you and Dr. King made about what you felt you needed to communicate in those times.
2: Well, first of all, the choices that Dr. King made, I was, a, I was an advisor yep. to him. He was the principal, and I was a person to uh, provide him... Uh, some, some techniques, some um, skill sets that he could use. But let's just, uh, let's just pause for a moment and, and reflect and characterize what was um, the convening of almost 250, or more than 250,000 people uh, in Washington, D.C. on Wednesday, um, August 28, 1963, 54 years ago. His speech without going into any particular section of the speech. The generality of the speech was a call to the moral conscience of America. The speech was a call to the moral conscience of America. You have to and to understand the reason why I characterize the speech that way, you the speech occurs within a historical backdrop of events that occurred just five, six months earlier. Uh, perhaps the most dramatic event were the events in Birmingham, 1963, where uh, in April and May 1963, mostly children, some young adults, peacefully protesting racial segregation, were met with fire hoses, police dogs, uh, and the pictures of the fire hoses and the police dogs uh, attacking uh, young African American boys and girls. This was posted on the front page of most newspapers on the television. Clips. You didn't have Facebook, uh, you know, and the internet and so forth, but it electrified the country. And so the question of, you remember the March on Washington for, for jobs and freedom, the March on Washington for jobs and freedom, so the question of pointing to the question of jobs and freedom. In 1955 or 1956, I think it was, uh, Mamie Till, the mother of Emmett Till, uh, whose son was brutally murdered in Mississippi for whistling at a white woman and, and he was savagely beaten and they found his body and they dredged it up. and. She insisted on having an open casket. And the reason she wanted to have an open casket, she wanted to present the question to America. What, just what kind of country is this who would do this to a, I think it was 13 or 14 year old boy? What could this 13 or 14 year old boy have done by whistling? That would have provoked such brutality. So in 1963, after the events in, in, in Birmingham, uh, 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 and, and by the way, after when Birmingham occurred, you had, you had some 240 demonstrations in 13 cities. Uh, yes, um, at least 240 demonstrations in 13 cities in 40 states hmm. following Birmingham through the country. Right? And, uh, and he was saying to America, on that day, just what kind of country are we? Standing before at the foot of the memorial, memorial Lincoln Memorial, one hundred years after the Emancipation, one hundred years after the Emancipation Proclamation. What kind of country are we, America, that we are still involved in racial segregation? That's, that was a call to the moral conscience. Now, he was, he was very smart, and so were we. We knew that African Americans only constituted 12 to 14% of the population. And we also knew that no matter how compelling on the merits or how persuasive the case for ending racial segregation on the merits was, it simply was not going to occur unless 88% of the population, majority of white people, unless the majority of white people came to see that it was in their self-interest that racial segregation had. And so he was saying to America, using some very powerful metaphors and speech and so forth, he was using the prophetic uh, picture of a dream. He wanted to present America with a dream that it could be the best that it could be. Okay, But the dream was a call to America's moral conscience to say we can be better than this. This is who we are. Now, 54 years later, one of the um, things that is, seems most of the several things that are most evident to me today is the silence, the absence of traditional institutions of morality. There's silence. Let me be quite specific. We could not have successfully marshaled the support for the Civil Rights Act of 1964 or the Voting Rights Act of 1965 unless we had the moral leadership of the religious community, churches, Protestant churches, the Jewish community, the Catholic community, major institutions. Eugene Dahlberg, was the president of Notre Dame. You had the president of the National Council of Churches. You have the president of the congregation of Hebrew synagogues. You had the president of the American Jewish Congress. You had the president of the National Catholic Churches. These were all people. Indeed, the March on Washington was led by Archbishop Patrick O'Boyle a week before the march on Washington, a week or 10 days before, in the parishes of Washington, uh, uh, leaflets, information, was handled out about the forthcoming march. So that's why you had a significant a contingent of nuns and priests and so forth. Mm. Where, so here we are. Here we are uh, now where I, I see a a default by absence an absence by default organizations that in 1968 were taking the leadership except for a few evangelical churches on what I and I what I call the christian right and 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 I like I like to qualify that because i believe that when you're talking about religion, religion and morality, there's no right or left, you know. There's no, there's no left or right. Uh, something and some, there is something is either morally right or morally wrong. Okay, there's no in between. Mm-hmm. all right? But there is uh, there is a default, a deafening silence, on what had heretofore here to been traditional institutions of moral. Leadership. Is the moral leadership simply going to be in the hands of 21st century technology? Is Twitter and Facebook and, 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 uh, uh, and the internet? And, and uh, are they going to be the ones that have taken over uh, the moral leadership of our country? this conference think about it this is a conference the communications network yeah the communications network conference yeah. this is a conference where you have representatives of major communications some executives of foundations many of their communication executives and so forth but you are looking back in history foundations have a tremendous legacy mm-hmm. for whatever reason, andrew uh, uh, Carnegie, and the Mellons, and the Fords, and the Rockefellers, okay, for whatever reasons other than taking advantage of the internal revenue, the tax exemption, to protect their wealth, those foundations generally were created to carry out some worthwhile public purpose, to use private money to enhance some generally worthwhile public purpose. The the, the foundations who are represented in the communications network, they have a proud legacy, you know? Mm. I think best summed up in the 21st century by the current president of the Ford Foundation, who wrote an open letter in September of this year called A Call, for Moral Courage. This is one of the larger foundations. Darren Walker. Darren Walker, okay. That letter called Moral Courage really is the uh, compass for today in terms of foundations and philanthropic work. And what he made very clear, consistent and adhering to the the limitations of when you are a foundation. He's not, and no one, and I'm not suggesting that the foundations do anything other than to strictly adhere to the charter, the 501c fraud. fraud. I'm not asking him to engage in political organization, political activity, not at all. But I am suggesting, as was so eloquently stated, Grant Oliphant. Grant Elephant, Elephant. Oh, of the Heinz and Decker. Of the Heinz. Oh, what an extraordinary... I mean, he, he said everything I would want to say, and and he said it because he built on the letter from Darren Walker, actually. And so, as we sit here today, these successor representatives of some extraordinary foundation leaders—the Mellons, the Carnegies, the Rockefellers, the, and now the younger ones, the Cases, the Case Foundation—I have some intimate knowledge of the Rockefellers because I. Came to know the Rockefeller family. I mean, very, very. Not many people know. Uh, Nelson Rockefeller's grandmother, for example, founded Spelman College. Hmm. Okay, it may have been his mother. I thought it was his grandmother. Mm-hmm. Spelman College. Hmm. All right. Spelman College is the first leading African American women's college. All right. Now you don't see the Rockefeller Foundations or the Rockefellers. Uh, promoting or oh, we found a spell in college, you know, don't, you, don't, you don't see, okay, okay. Uh, they are generally more well known for their research in medicine and Africa and so forth. Um, I know at a critical period of time, and I'm not sure that the current generation of the Rockefellers themselves know this, but that when we were um, in 1963, we didn't have enough money to bail out the, uh, the kids who were in jail, notwithstanding we were getting a lot of contributions from the unions and the churches and so forth. And uh, Harry Belofani called me and said that he had received a call from Nelson Rockefeller, a, a key person, and said, uh, Can you have Dr. King's lawyer come up in Birmingham and see us? And I came up very early, and uh, I mean, I came up very late at night one Friday night, and I was instructed to meet them at the bank. And I went at the Chase Bank. Now, banks were not open in, in April 1963. There were no ATMs. Okay? Right. Okay. <laughs> and Nelson and David, his brother David, walked into the uh, uh, Chase Bank at 46th Street Avenue of the Americas and walked in, took out $100,000 in cash and gave it. To me, gave it, made it available, so I would take it back. The use of the promissory note (laughs) in the speech came from that incident because, as I was, as I was very delighted to take the money and get the money to get ready to go out of money. So, no, Mr. Jones, you know, banking regulations require us to have some kind of, uh, you know, uh, document to show how we dispense this money. So I go over there. He says, "Go over there and see this man. He's sitting there." I think it was the executive vice president, he's typing. He said, what is your name? I said, Clarence Jones. What's your middle name? Clarence B. Jones. I'm looking at He's typing on a typewriter and so forth. He says, well, we're typing a promissory note. I said, and I was a lawyer then. I said, promissory note? Really? Yes, it's a demand promissory note now. For those of you who may hear this project, there are promissory notes, general promissory notes as I, Clarence B. Jones, uh, hereby promise to pay, one year from, from a day certain. One year, I promise to pay $1,000 back to you, one date from today. The day is certain. Hmm. A demand promissory note, however, is where the creditor says, you will repay me when I call you on, on demand. And some states uh, gave the debtor a statutory right of at least five-day notice. Some of them only gave 48 hours. So I'm saying a demand promissory note for 48 hours? I mean a demand promissory note for a hundred thousand dollars I mean. But I said okay this is what I have to do you know I I took them in. But this had such a profound effect on me that when I was working with Dr. King in drafting uh, helping him craft the speech of the March on Washington and all I did was write out the suggested text which would summarize some of the ideas that we had discussed. So the suggested text I used that he considered using as opening the speech included the use of a promissory note, because I had such a compelling enough. Know? Yeah. I did not know that in fact he was going to use it until I heard it. I did not know until the fact that, he said that the first seven paragraphs of the speech were exactly as I had suggested the text that he used, but I didn't know that in fact he was going to use it until he spoke it.
3: In a sense, we've come to our nation's capital to cash a check. When the architects of our republic wrote the magnificent words of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, they were signing a promissory note to which every American was to fall heir. This note was a promise that all men yes, black men as well as white men, would be guaranteed the unalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It is obvious today that America has defaulted on this promissory note insofar as her citizens of color are concerned. Instead of honoring this sacred obligation, America has given the negro people a bad check. A check which has come back marked insufficient funds.
2: You made a promise to us when you emancipated us, but then you <laughs> defaulted on that promise, so we come here to redeem that's that's it. Yep. okay. But the issue facing major the leadership of foundations today, particularly those people who are their communications spokespersons or communications, creators of word information, that they have to pause and reflect for a moment and say that what is now required more than anything else is a call on the moral conscience of America, just as Dr. King did in his I Have a Dream speech, to redeem the soul of America. It cannot be left to the President of the United States. It cannot be left to athletes who are kneeling or standing arms. It could not be left to them. It cannot be left merely to people holding signs that say Black Lives Matter. It must be a call in which those institutions which have traditionally been the custodians of the moral cautions of America. Churches, they've been definitely silent. And foundations, because they have been empowered to want to use their wealth to determine how best to address and come up with solutions and programs to be, be responsive to uh, issues. Okay. Now the one thing I can say, uh, April 2018 will be the 50th anniversary of the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. <clears throat> now after an Obama presidency, after uh, the election of Donald Trump, After Charlottesville, after numerous incidents of black people, principally black men, being shot by police, and I'm going to, I'm not going to make an assumption that every black person who was shot by the police uh, was an angel, except under the law, they are presumed innocent. But what I will say, what is most disturbing and what I'm sure created the Black Lives Matter movement was that why in the options of effecting an arrest of a suspect who is African American, why is the use of legal force chosen as the first option to effect an arrest rather than the last one? Fifty years after the assassination of Martin Luther King, Jr., after Charlottesville, Virginia, and after what we're seeing going on in the uh, National Football League and so forth, foundations do not have to devote any more money to studies. Okay? They now, whatever budgets they had allocated for uh, studying and doing research on issues of race, they now can take all of that money and move it over to a different side. Okay? They don't have to spend any more money whatsoever. Okay? That money now should only be put in terms of action. They don't, no more study is needed. Right? <laughs> no more study is needed. So the, the creative challenge is since we don't have we we know what the issue is. We don't have to study it anymore. Then the question only is how, since we know what the problem is, how can we, how can we uh, develop a program that will get the most cost-effective use of the money we employ?
1: They don't have to devote any more money to research. On whether we have a race problem in America. No, whether we have a race problem. <laughs> no, you don't have to. You don't have to det- Very clear. Turbulent times call for moral clarity.
2: Moral clarity and unequivocal moral commitment. There, are, there is not something a little bit right and a little bit wrong. There's no wrong relativity. Okay, Either Confederate monuments are morally right or morally wrong. Either continuation of racial segregation is morally right or morally wrong. Okay? Either people should have the right to make their own private decisions As to whom they should marry and love. Of course not. It's not a question, a legal question. It's should they have the right to do it? I will say I am very proud to have uh, lived long enough to see this um, generation of foundation leaders um, seriously pause and reflect. And wrestle with their mission at this time. I think that's a good sign. I think that uh, Darren Walker has said it much better than I have said it in this brief period of time. He is one of them. Every foundation nonprofit should read his open letter of September. More good advice.
1: Well, thank you very much for taking the time out.
2: No, it's my pleasure.
0: Thanks again for tuning in to Achieve Great Things. If you like what you hear, subscribe on iTunes and give us a review there. Um, Shoot us an email at podcast.hadaway.com if you have thoughts, suggestions, comments. Thank you very much for listening. See you next week.